This is WMPG. My name is Dr. Ann, and this is Safe Space, the show devoted to subjects that are difficult to talk about because they make us feel vulnerable, afraid, or ashamed. My guest today is Dr. Loring Conant. He is an assistant clinical professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School at the Cambridge Health Alliance. He was the medical director of Cambridge, uh, Hospice of Cambridge for 11 years, trained as an internist with an interest in geriatrics, and served on the faculty of a course at Harvard Medical School called Living with Life-Threatening Illness. Welcome, Loring. Thank you, Anne. So glad you're here. I want to start out by asking you, what is it about the subject of death and dying that makes it so hard to talk about? You know, it's so ironic. 24 hours ago to this moment, I was sitting on our porch in Maine on the shore of the Kennebec when visited by my wife's sister. So my sister-in-law and my wife and I were talking about the fact that their father, whom I never met because he died, he died a year before I married Louise, uh, developed a rather aggressive cancer and never talked about it with mm. his children or his wife. Mm. And here we are. Um, he died in 1963. And here we are 40-plus years later still feeling as though uh, his daughters have been left out of something. And, and we made a specific comment about his wife that she felt really left out and alone. Mm. So you're really speaking to the cost of how difficult it is to speak to, how much the, there's a legacy that comes from that for the, for the survivors, the, the loved ones. Yes, and of course, um, Louise's dad was of that generation where, it, that, that being in 1962-63, you, know, you had a stiff upper lip, and the noble thing to do was just tuck it in and not talk about it. Uh-huh. But uh, the casualty of that is, is very great. So you're speaking to one reason that makes it hard to talk about is a value on stoicism and sort of bearing it nobly alone and quietly. And, you know, one must always respect the individual. We all have our sort of inventory of what makes us be who we are as an individual. Mm-hmm. But I think uh, the privilege of my having been a physician for, for many years and and going on that pilgrimage with uh, a number of individuals who've had a life-threatening illness and having the privilege of witnessing how they have gone through that journey. Um, they're all individual, but there's certain generalities that um, the portals open up of, of almost a, a gift of being able to uh, talk about fears, talk about sadness, talk about loss. Mm-hmm. Even those individuals who uh, were the proud, uh, mm. uptight New England Yankee so or, lem- or Yankee-esque. <laughs> so let me ask you about an example of that. So for someone for whom um, not talking about these things would be more comfortable, what do you think it was that made the portals open, as you say, that made it possible for that person to, to feel able to broach the subject? I think they were probably uh, given 
permission to um, be more reflective about uh, what obviously uh, every everyone uh, has a, a whole list of, of concerns as one is facing one's end of life. Mm-hmm. And uh, if one gives one permission and space to be reflective. You, this is something that can't be forced, but it, right. it, it's an invitation. And did that and invitation come from you as the doctor or from their family members generally? I, th- well, I think it depends on, on the nature of, of the family. Yeah. Um, and I think one of the privileges of a caregiver or a physician or indeed a member of the clergy is that the member of the clergy or a physician may be a, a, a catalyst, may be a, a facilitator for such important discussions uh, to, to occur. I can imagine, knowing that you worked in a hospice setting, that for a patient to be in hospice, there's some acknowledgement that their time on this earth is limited, which is already different than perhaps many people who may have a life-threatening illness but don't have something so clear that's been named. And I wonder, in your experience as a hospice doctor, did you find that it was easier to broach a subject with patients who were part of hospice than with patients, say, who weren't? Or Well, of course, when they make that transition from being part of a medical care program where there was a, an expectation and hope that uh, whatever was being done might make a major difference. And, and then the uh, acknowledgement that further surgery, further chemotherapy, further treatment uh, would not be uh, helpful. Matter of fact, we, we talk about the quality of life. It may actually interfere with one's ability to interact with one's family members or just in, go from day to day that when that transition occurs, uh, and this is so hard because some people do not want to give up, particularly younger, younger people who have mm-hmm. uh, young children, um, there, there's that sense of, of magical hoping that, gee, if I take this next protocol, that might make a difference. Mm-hmm. But still, the value of, of that conversation or invitation of, so what do you think is going on? Or how, how are you dealing with all this? Or what do you think is going on? I think that that is such an important question, and, and not only for the patient, or for, but for family members. So you can get an idea of what their expectations are, what their maybe misunderstandings are of what is happening to this particular patient. Striking, because it's such a simple question. Yeah, but it's so hard because people may be caught up in this momentum of, uh, I think there's a certain condition reflex of people who read uh, miracle stories or look at television and say, gosh, the... I heard that this drug or this particular program helped, and maybe maybe it will make a big difference for me. It strikes me. My, my next question about what makes it so hard to talk about is imagining that the answer to that question is really different if you're the patient or if you're the, the 
friend or family member. And what I'm hearing you say right now is that the family member may feel that their primary job is to give hope, to find new resources, to track down an experimental medication, to keep their fighting spirit nourished and alive and not to feel like they've given up. And um, I wonder if you could speak to that, if you saw that, and if, it, if that makes it really hard for people. Well, I think that is a great observation because there can be they can be out of sync. You can have the patient who's just headed, just cannot bear to go through another chemotherapy or another regimen, and there's pressure on the part of the loved one of the family of, of wanting to uh, make this special effort. Don't give up. We and see it in cooking, trying to feed <laughs> them, trying to get them to eat, uh, that kind of thing. Yeah. But again... Um, there has to be so much patience and, and respect through this whole process of listening and trying to get a sense of what, what are you most concerned about or what, what are you afraid of, mm-hmm. um, rather than make pronouncements about uh, this, is, uh, this is what I think you should do. We should... Uh, that reminds me, I think, one of the big fears of, of individuals who are uh, dealing with a life-threatening illness is a huge loss of control mm. and how one invites um, the uh, patient to um, recognize that even though, indeed, there is this uh, difficulty of, of, of a life-threatening illness, that there can be elements of control, and indeed the patient and the patient's family or significant others can be partners in crafting a program which honors what the wishes are of, of this collective body and not just have it imposed on them. So just to make that really specific, and I'm going to mm. just say this is WMPG. My name is Dr. Anne. This is Safe Space, and I'm talking to Dr. Lauren Conan about the subject of death and dying. And Lauren's talking to us about the, the very common fear of loss of control. And, and what I heard you say is that there are ways to give people back that control by honoring their wishes. And I wonder, could you give us a, an example of that? Well, uh, I, th- I think I alluded to it uh, already that a particularly an older person uh, maybe just tired and mm-hmm. and um, has does not want to um, follow the hopes and expectations of maybe the children and say, "Gee, Dad, why don't you just mm. go through this?" And um, I don't want to go through that surgery or that that chemotherapy again. I. Uh, I, what I would like to do, and this, this falls under the category of hope and how hope gets recalibrated um, and, uh, and when one is faced with uh, mortal illness, hope that maybe I can live another month or two to see my grandchild graduate from the sixth grade or live long enough for my grandchild's birthday. Mm-hmm. And uh, those little landmarks can mean the world to uh, the patient who's dying. Mm-hmm. So what you're saying is that with the recognition that a person is dying, 
the content of what a person is hoping for shifts from living indefinitely to something very personal to them that is of great value and that perhaps one of the values of the conversation itself is helping them identify or even name what they're hoping for. Yeah, and, and that reminds me that the very first um, sort of vignette that I talked about when we started talking about my father-in-law yeah. not having, just being totally isolated and not engaged in any conversation with anybody about what was happening with the trajectory of, of his illness. Uh, he he must have felt terribly alone and isolated. It makes me think of the book, The Death of Ivan Illich, mm. when he writes about um, how lonely he was in his dying, because he knew he was dying, but no one would talk to him about it. Right. Yeah, so you can imagine. That book should be read annually by every fellow mortal. <laughs> <laughs> so I'd like to ask you a little bit more personally about your own experiences with death and dying and how has this touched you personally, and what did you learn from that? Well, per most personally, uh, I have to think about losing uh, my parents and, and the contrast between when my dad died. He died in 1974. I'd been out in practice for five years, um, uh, although I was beginning to generate an interest in, in um, at that point, early hospice care, uh, I lacked knowledge and understanding and maturity to know how to best to handle my emotions as well as dealing with dad. And dad um, died of, of stomach cancer in the hospital. Uh, the last person to see him was our, our very dear friend as minister. And, and he died alone, but fortunately he died rather suddenly of, a, of an embolus. So uh, it wasn't as though he was suffering for a long period of time, uh, isolated and alone, which I think is a fear of a lot of people, of being yes. alone. And, um, and I was sort of caught up on being the uh, responsible member of the family, and uh, I... I grieved most before dad, as when I learned about dad's diagnosis. Mm. But after he died, uh, there was a relief uh, involved. But fast forward almost 30 years, I was teaching a course in palliative care for a group of returning physicians and nurses. And this was, it's a spectacular opportunity for professionals to dig deeply into their own personal inventories of losses mm -hmm. um, so that they can be more effective caregivers if they are aware of their own vulnerabilities. And, I, and we were supposed to talk about uh, a difficult death and a, or a major death, excuse me, a major loss. And usually we talk about a patient but as we went around the room and the faculty, there are two faculty for uh, seven uh, students. I say students, they're, they're mature nurses and doctors. And as I, they were going around the room, they started talking about their own personal losses. And I said, I've got to talk about my father. 
And I found myself grieving in a way that I had never grieved before about my dad. Mm. So moral of that tale is that a loss can remain uh, dormant in terms of expression of grief for, for a long time. Mm-hmm. And the polar opposite of that was my mom who died. Before we yeah, talk about yeah. your mom, I want to come to her. But yeah. your experience then in that moment of connecting with your grief, was there a sense of relief in it? Oh, yes. Yes, I want to make sure we don't miss that yeah, point. thank you. <laughs> so that 30 years later, you reconnected with your sadness, and there was something about that that, was, that felt really good. Yeah. Can you speak a little more to that? Well, um, I, I guess I felt I was honoring the loss mm. uh, with... Um, in a better way than, and that may, may be, achieving closure is not the right word, but mm-hmm. I, I think honoring is the best, the best uh, way. And, and you can't help but reflect on the fact that, you know, I'm approaching 70 and my dad died at age 72. And um, I am blessed by having a much closer emotional bond with my children in terms of outward expression of emotion than I did with, with my dad. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, so I, I guess I was sort of grieving that that had never been an opportunity uh, to be fully expressed. Yes. And, uh, but again, uh, the value of, of keeping those receptors open uh, when people go to funerals, mm-hmm. very often they will be, they're given an opportunity to not only grieve the person whom they're honoring at that funeral service, but they they get in the reflective mode. They can and grieve their own yes, other losses, yeah. Uh, yeah. And what I hear you saying is that in when we grieve someone, we're not only grieving the loss of them, but we're grieving what what didn't happen in that relationship when it was alive, you yeah. know what the limits of that relationship were, that that's part of the grieving, too. Here, here. Yeah, that really makes sense. This is Dr. Anne on WMPG. The show is Safe Space, and my guest is Dr. Lauren Conant, speaking about death and dying. And you were about to tell us more about the death of your mother and how that touched you. Well, that was quite the sort of opposite experience. Mom died almost at her 99th birthday. And uh, she... Uh, was quite diminished by a chronic illness. She didn't have cancer. She had spinal stenosis and was pretty much bedridden uh, her last uh, almost year of life. Very active mind. Um, and uh, But she'd had several mini strokes. So it was hard, uh, tiny little strokes. So it was hard for her to express herself clearly. Mm. Um, uh, parenthetically, for for the listening audience, one wonderful way to keep a connection with your parent and a loved one who has a hard time talking is to read aloud to them. Mm. Um, so uh, I did a lot of reading reading aloud. Um, Kill a Mockingbird was a wonderful one to read aloud because we could watch the DVD. So one can't help thinking about the beginning and end of life, bracketed, yes, framed re- by that. She read act. aloud to me a lot. Here, here. Yeah, that act of love and connection. 
So um, uh, mother, uh, we, we'd have this periodic conversation every few months and, and I would acknowledge, gee, this is so difficult for you. You wanted to play your harpsichord, you want to play the piano and do needlepoint for your grandchildren and you can't. This must be so frustrating. Mm. And, um, and this must be so depressing. Mm. And, and, and I'd ask her about fear and she was very clear, I'm not afraid to die. Matter of fact, I would like to die soon. Mm. And, and so we would, we would have this common conversation to say, Mom, the best we can wish for you is that you just go to sleep. Yeah. But promise me that night before you go to sleep, you give us a telephone call so we can say goodbye, say how much we love you, and then you can just go to sleep. Mm. And I think that was very reassuring for her to hear over many times. And indeed, um, towards uh, her last week of life, um, she had developed, in spite of the wonderful nursing care that she received, she developed some pressure sores, which are just impossible to prevent, mm -hmm. ultimately. And she developed an infection, a lot of pain, and they were excellent about giving her morphine to keep her as comfortable as possible. And the privilege of just being at her side and, and just sort of quietly going through a life review. I, I was just sort of imaging, okay, I was in the first grade and, and then the second grade and progressing through sort of a life review. Sometimes I would speak it out and talk to mother even though she couldn't respond. So that opportunity for uh, a life review was a gift. Mm. And so you, you really used the time intentionally to talk about what your relationship had meant over mm -hmm. all the years. Yeah. Quite opposite from a chance I was dad. Yeah, and do you feel like you actually said goodbye to her? Oh, yes. Yeah. I, I, I most resonantly. Yeah, and so how, in contrast to the experience you were talking about with your father-in-law, how is it for you now, knowing that you had that with her? How has that, how has the loss of your mother stayed with you differently because you had that chance? Well, I don't have uh, regrets of I wish I had, yeah. you know, the if-onlys. Mm -hmm. And um, I think of in terms of achieving closure, that, that felt so clear. And a grandchild came in and played uh, piano music CD on the piano that what belonged to my mother that she gave to my grandson, uh, to her mm -hmm. grandson, which my, was my nephew. Mm -hmm. So um, things there, coming full circle yes, somehow. Yes, exactly. Yeah, exactly. We have just a few more minutes left, and I thought I might end by asking you um, if you might have some words for people who do have a member of their family that they love who is facing a life-threatening illness. Uh, if you might have some ideas for them about how they might approach the subject, or at least open up the possibility for the subject to get named. Yeah, I, I, th I, I mean, I have a very practical suggestion uh, in, in terms of giving uh, a glossy of terminology about how you might broach the subject. There's a, a, a wonderful website uh, on the uh, available, uh, if people have access to a computer, uh, that will invite people to 
uh, it's sort of frequently asked, uh, frequent questions that come up. But the basic principle is, um, I think, uh, make sure you don't force your agenda on on the person who is who is uh, experiencing a loss, whether it's a family member or or the patient. Uh, I think by posing questions uh, and in a reflective, respectful way, just to get an idea of where they are and and um, what are you most concerned about? What do you think is going on? Uh, what do you, what are your fears? Um, just very gently posed, as, as opposed to going in and saying, "I think you should do this or that." I see this happening. Ask. Always be respectful and find out where that person is in relationship to what's going on. And just say, for example, the family member senses that the person can't go there or they don't respond to any of those openings. But the daughter, say, does have something that they really wish to communicate. Mm -hmm. Do you think it's okay to just say, well, I want you to know this? Or what would you say to that person? I absolutely said, uh, if her mom, gosh... I I'm really afraid that I'm going to lose you soon, mm. and that I just want you to know whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that there's room for their fears as well. Yes, because I, I think if you turn it around a little bit, uh, that 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 helps. That sounds really helpful. So what I want to do in closing is to ask you what the address of that website is. Uh, very quickly, there is a quote that I came across as I was thinking about this. Yes. For all sad words of tongue or pen, the saddest are these, it might have been. That was by John Greenleaf Whittier. Mm. The website is by this wonderful physician who's now at Dartmouth. He came from Missoula, Montana. His name is Ira Bayok. And the website is www.dyingwell.org. And the key things, he has four points. Please forgive me. I forgive you. Thank you. I love you. Those Mm. are four key phrases that have to be said at the end. And the whole question of whether the person is ready to forgive will leave for another discussion. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Lauren Conant, for this wonderful discussion about death and dying. This is Dr. Ann at Safe Space on WMPG. If you have a request for a topic you'd like to see us address in this show, please email me at drannwmpg at gmail.com. That's D-R-A-N-N-E-W-M-P-G at gmail.com. Next week, my guest will be Neil McKenty speaking on depression. And coming up next, we have Caribbean Flavor with Danny.